Sometimes I have an item and I don't know what to do with it. Uh, could be a piece of mail or a random part or some miscellaneous item and I won't use it much and maybe not even at all, but I don't wanna throw it away, but I don't want it laying around and I just don't know what to do with it. So I'm tidying up and I put the item on a pile somewhere and in time that pile grows messy and I'm tidying again and come to that item and I still don't know what to do with, with it. Can't seem to bring myself to get rid of it um, or make a, a sensible decision of where to put it or, or keep it. So back it goes on to the pile and after months or maybe even years I encounter it again and think I, I haven't used this. I'm getting rid of it. Does this happen to you at all? Do you know what I'm talking about? I think these kinds of items have helped create the American phenomenon of junk drawers. Do you have junk drawers at your house? We have several junk drawers. If you need a junk drawer, you can borrow one of ours. Well, friends, guilt can be like that. We have it, we feel it, we may not know what to do with it. We might be and feel guilty for a host of reasons, failing or disappointing others, making poor decisions or even making good decisions that offend others, desiring shameful things or knowing we shouldn't, but then we do anyway. It could be a host of reasons, but what do we do with our guilt and guilty feelings? Objective guilt is actual fault for breaking God's law. Subjective guilt is feeling responsible or remorseful for some wrongdoing or even sometimes imagined wrongdoing. What do we do with both objective and subjective guilt? If we don't deal with it appropriately, guilt can lead to various other problems, poor sleep habits, loss of appetite, depression, headaches, backaches, cardiovascular disease, gastrointestinal disorders, low sexual desire, escapism, thoughts of suicide, and more, and for unbelievers, ultimately hell. And secular psychology doesn't help. Secular psychology lies and tells us we are essentially good and not actually guilty under God's holy law. It lies and tells us that in order to deal with our guilty feelings, we need a better self-image. Self-esteem can't remove guilt. Everybody has guilt. Some people try to suppress it with entertainment or addictions or work. Others try to shift the blame or self-justify. Others compensate for their guilt by doing good works in order to make up for it. Is there an effective way to overcome guilt? Brothers and sisters, do we know what to do with our guilt? Have you ever watched an artist paint, maybe someone like Bob Ross with his ginormous afro, if you know what I'm talking about, or... First, artists lay down some base color on the canvas, and it doesn't look like much, but then they layer paint and add detail, and by the end, a beautiful image emerged, um, if they're a good painter. That's kind of what I've tried to do in these, in these sermons. I put down some foundation paint first, and then layer until at the end, the petition is clear, at least that's, that's the goal. And I'll try to do that with the fifth petition, hoping that the beauty of it emerges. Okay, so that's what, what, what I'm gonna do here. We need to apprehend these four 
truths in order to make sense of the fifth petition. The holiness of God, the depravity of man, the righteousness of Christ, and the forgiveness of God. Number one, the holiness of God. The fifth petition is an insincere request until we apprehend God's absolute holiness and the holiness of his law. Holiness is purity, flawlessness, faultlessness, blamelessness, and perfection. To be holy is to be altogether good, without darkness, evil, depravity, or sin. To be holy is to be totally separate from infirmity, impurity, and iniquity. One source stated that holy refers to the quality of God who is transcendently distinctive, unique, majestic, perfect, and pure. Do you know and worship God in the splendor of his holiness? God pronounces multiple times in Leviticus, I am holy. In Exodus 15, 11, Moses and Israel sing, Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness? In Isaiah 6, 3, one seraph calls to another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. And the four living creatures of Revelation 4, 8 never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The late R.C. Sproul once said this, There is only one attribute of God that is ever raised to the third degree of repetition in Scripture. There is only one characteristic of Almighty God that is communicated in the superlative degree from the mouths of angels, where the Bible doesn't say that God is holy, or even that He is holy, holy, but that He is holy, holy, holy. The Bible doesn't say that God is mercy, 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 or love, 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 or justice, 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 or wrath, 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 but that He is holy, holy, holy. End quote. What is God's holiness? It is His radiant purity, flawless beauty, moral perfection, excellent virtuousness and absolute goodness. It is His transcendent distinction, uniqueness and majesty. God is divinely holy, matchlessly holy, and superlatively holy. God is holy, holy, holy. It follows then that God's law is also holy. For it comes from him. Romans 7:12 says, So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Do you know the holiness of God and his law and God's opposition to all that is unholy? For us to sincerely and urgently pray and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors, we must know the holiness of God and his law. Number two, the depravity of man. The fifth petition is an insincere request until we apprehend the corruption of man's nature. Even as God's redeemed and beloved children who are being currently conformed to the image of Christ, we still struggle against our sinful flesh. We are aware of our depravity as believers, but our awareness is only partial, brothers and sisters, for we do not fully comprehend the holiness of God in his law and at the same time cannot fully comprehend the full extent of our depravity. 
From where do you know your sins and misery? From the law of God, and that is from the holy law of God. See, the holiness of God in his law is so pure, vivid, exacting, and relentless that when holy sinners encounter the holiness of God in his law, they want to run and hide in fear, in terror. John 3.20 says, For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. That's our natural human condition and inclination. The criminal, the criminal is confident during the crime, but cowardly when he receives the exacting and unrelenting justice of the righteous and good judge. Many people grade themselves on a massive moral curve. They compare themselves not to God's holy law, but to others less righteous than themselves. They cannot see They do not realize that they have no inherent righteousness. Several places in Scripture, God says, Be holy, for I am holy. Jesus told his disciples, You therefore must be perfect. Perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Who is morally perfect? We must consider our original sin. Our nature and desires reveal our debt. We must consider our actual sin, our daily law-breaking, increases our debt. We must consider our sins of ignorance. We're guilty in ways that we don't even know. We must consider our sins of omission. We're guilty because we don't do what we should. We must consider our sins of commission. We're guilty when we do things we shouldn't. We must consider our past, present, and future sins, all of which reveal our great debt to God. Has Scripture not said, none is righteous, no, not one. No one does good, not even one, for the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. After the flood, the Lord said in his heart, the intention of man's heart is evil. From his youth. But we're Christians with a new heart, right? Yes, but as a Christian, the Apostle Paul said, For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh, for I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. As a Christian with a new heart, Paul cried out, wretched man that I am. He was being sanctified, conformed to the image of Christ when he said, I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. That was a redeemed and adopted child of God talking. So for you to sincerely and urgently pray, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors, you must apprehend the corruption of your flesh. Your ongoing inclination to sin while at the same time you desire to follow Christ and to walk by the Spirit. Number three, the righteousness of Christ. The fifth petition is indeed an insincere and futile request 
until we apprehend and receive the righteousness of Christ by faith. Jesus Christ is the perfect law keeper, God's perfect and faithful son. God sent his eternally beloved and only begotten son to this earth to obey and to fulfill the law for his people. How could Jesus possibly obey and fulfill God's holy law? Because his heart is holy. His desires are holy, his intentions are holy, his ambitions are holy, his affections are holy, his actions are holy, his achievements are holy. Our Lord Jesus Christ is holy, holy, holy. Hebrews 4.15 says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, and here it comes, yet without sin. It's not just that our Lord never commits any sins. It is also that he has an entirely holy nature and never even desires to sin. And Hebrews 7.26 adds, for it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. Do you know the righteousness of Christ? You must know the righteousness of Christ to know how your guilt problem is resolved, is solved. Listen very carefully. In order for you to know what to do with your objective guilt and subjective feelings of guilt, you must apprehend the vital truth of 2 Corinthians 5.21. Listen carefully. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Now number four, the forgiveness of God. The fifth petition is an insincere and futile request until we apprehend and receive God's forgiveness in Christ Jesus. Jesus Christ, the true and righteous man, endured the cross, took upon himself the sin, guilt, and debt of God's chosen people, suffered the justice and wrath of Almighty God for his people so that none of their sin and guilt would be counted against them. Their debt to God would be paid in full. His impeccable righteousness would be imputed to them. All that they would, uh, all that they would be reconciled to God. For the purpose of being reconciled to God, freed from the burden of the law and compelled by the Holy Spirit to live in thankful obedience to their Father. Jesus Christ must be true and righteous man because the justice of God requires that the same human nature which has sinned should pay for sin. Because one who himself is a sinner cannot pay for others. At the same time, Jesus Christ must be true God so that by the power of his divine nature, he might bear in his human nature the burden of God's wrath and might obtain for us and restore to us righteousness and life which include the removal of our guilt and the forgiveness of our sin. If Jesus Christ is not true and righteous man, and true God, there is no reason to pray, forgive us of our debts. But brothers and sisters, 
Jesus Christ is true and righteous man and true God. Therefore, his sacrifice on the cross is sufficient payment for our debts and sufficient means to remove our guilt. For you to sincerely and urgently pray, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors, you must recognize, receive, and rest in God's forgiveness which Christ purchased on the cross and granted you through faith. Do you understand Colossians 2, 13, and 14? Do you understand this? And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. The fifth petition becomes a great relief and reassurance for your soul when you receive and you rest in the truth that God has taken your objective debt which stood against you with its legal demands and he canceled it. He set it aside by imputing your debt to his son and nailing it with him to the cross. The fifth petition is life-giving for us, dear brothers and sisters, precisely because as we go to our Father and as we ask Him to forgive us our debts, He hears and does not count any of our sins against us. Like a remote control car, sometimes we're controlled by our guilt. Our guilt. But guilt can't control us like grace can. Grace. If your debt has been paid by Christ and yet guilt is controlling you, you are not looking to Christ and resting in the reality that he has paid for your debt, which is grace and which is the only proper motivation for serving God and others. Grace. How easy it is for us, brothers and sisters, to feel the guilt of our debts and to forget that though they increase daily, they have been fully and finally paid by Christ's blood. Christ endured the cross, the horrors of the cross, so that when you and I, dear brothers and sisters, ask our Father for forgiveness, we have it immediately and perpetually. Saints, here at Jerusalem Church, we, we often confess together the Apostles' Creed. And so in that, we are confessing, I believe in the forgiveness of sins. Now you confess it, but do you believe it? Christ shed his blood so that every single time you fail and go to your heavenly Father to ask him to forgive your debts, he does. He does. When you confess, I believe in the forgiveness of sins, you are confessing that you believe that God, because of Christ's satisfaction, will no more remember your sins. Meaning, God will no longer count your sins against you. 
nor your sinful nature against which you have to struggle all your life, but God will graciously grant to you the righteousness of Christ that you may never, you've got to catch this, you may never come into condemnation. 1 Peter 3.18 says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. How can a holy God forgive you and me after what we've done and after what we continue to do? He doesn't sweep our sin and guilt under the rug. He doesn't ignore our debt or say, oh, it's not really that big of a deal. He doesn't even merely erase our debt from the books. No, 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 no. God took all our sin and guilt and imputed it to his son, Jesus Christ, on the cross as payment for your debt. He gave for this to happen. Christ died for this to happen. God poured out the full extent of his justice and his wrath upon Christ so that you would live debt-free, relieved from oppression of guilt. God took Christ's righteousness and through faith credited to you And what does that do? It silences the harsh creditor of the law. And it gives us sweet relief and rest in Christ. Why bear the griefs Christ already bore for you? Why carry the sorrows that Christ already carried for you? David and the apostle Paul gave us something to think about when guilt weighs heavily on us. Blessed or happy are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. The gospel is relevant every single time you feel guilty because the gospel tells you over and over and over and over again that the Lord does not count your sin against you, and then the gospel motivates you towards greater holiness. If you receive these four truths by faith, the holiness of God, the depravity of man, the righteousness of Christ, and the forgiveness of God, then praying, forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors, will be a guilt-relieving lifeline for you. A guilt-relieving lifeline. I have three simple points to add the last brush strokes to the painting, and hopefully the beauty of the fifth petition emerges. Three points. The fifth petition is humbling, comforting, and encouraging. Humbling, comforting, and encouraging. Number one, the fifth petition is humbling. See, the fifth petition necessitates that we daily consider the seriousness of our sin and debt to God. Debts are simply sins, the moral obligations that we owe God. Debt is sin, transgression, iniquity. One one study Bible said sin is a failure to fulfill our obligation to God, resulting in enormous debts to divine justice. End of quote. The, The fifth petition assumes daily Humility and dependence on grace. Part 
of our sanctification is certainly the increasing godliness. As we become conformed to the image of Christ, we're growing more godly in practice, but also our increasing awareness of our sin and misery. The more mature you get, the more you realize how depraved you really are, and that's humbling. Now listen, please listen carefully, because this is important to understand. Heidelberg 13 says that we cannot pay our debt, but we daily increase our debt. R.C. Sproul said this, when we sin, we put ourselves into debt to God. We incur an obligation. We come to owe him something. Thus, when we ask for his forgiveness, we are asking that he forgive our debt. End of quote. Saints, every day we sin and increase our debt to God. Jesus taught his disciples who were forgiven to pray daily forgive us our debts because they daily accumulated more debt that they couldn't pay, more debt that they couldn't pay. And that's humbling. It forced them to daily recognize their debts and daily depend upon God for grace that was theirs in Christ. Why else would Jesus instruct his disciples to daily ask for the forgiveness of their debts? Might we be miserable sometimes as Christians because though we believe that Jesus paid it all, we really do, we might slip in as we accumulate more debt to assuming, wrongly believing that it is now our job to pay off the rest of the debt. That's exhausting, that's disheartening. Self-righteous people cannot pray the fifth petition honestly. They're too prideful. Spirit-filled, humble, needy, penitent sinners pray the fifth petition honestly because they realize their increasing debt, are convicted by the Holy Spirit and humbled by their shortcomings, but are not crushed or defeated, but instead are, are actually heartened, emboldened to run, quickly and repetitively to their father for the absolution of their guilt, the restoration of their joy, and renewed vigor to obey their father by the Spirit. For believers, the fifth petition is not an opportunity to wallow in their guilt, but to be humbled and to depend on their father's grace more and more and more every day. It's about their father's reproof and sanctifying grace, not his rejection and condemnation. If you're not clear on that, this will just be wallowing in guilt. You'll never see the end of it. You'll never see the beauty of Christ. Jesus graciously gave us this petition for various reasons. Your sinus gives us a few here. Number one, that we acknowledge our sins. Can you pray this without honestly acknowledging your sins? It won't mean anything for you if you don't. Two, that we thirst and long after the forgiveness of sins. Can you pray this sincerely and honestly without like, please give it to me. I want to be forgiven. Can you do that? It would just be empty if you didn't want it. Number three, that our faith may be exercised seeing that this petition springs from faith and also confirms faith. Can you pray this sincerely and honestly and, and, and walk away renewed, not believing? that you actually have what you ask for? 
That's just going to be a terrible prayer if you're not sincerely believing that your Father actually confirms your faith by granting you in the gospel of Jesus Christ the forgiveness of sins. As we pray, it confirms faith, it builds faith. Prayer is a means of God's grace through which God strengthens the faith of those who sincerely and urgently ask him for forgiveness. Your sinus also said this, this petition is a remarkable and free confession of the church in which she acknowledges and deplores her sins and is at the same time a comfort that the church shall receive the forgiveness of sins according to the promise of Christ. That brings us to number two. The fifth petition is also comforting. How is it that our ongoing struggle with sin does not bury us beneath guilt? So this is a very important question. We are not crushed And we are not controlled by guilt because our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ was pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities to reconcile us to God. So that when we go to our Father daily and ask that He not count our sins or debts against us, He doesn't. He doesn't. In fact, He never will. We need the comfort of the gospel daily to address our objective guilt and to abate our subjective feelings of guilt, which can be very intense sometimes. As we pray, our Father increases our hatred of sin, quickens our retreat from sin, strengthens our repentance, and deepens our comfort in the gospel. As we commune with our Father through penitent prayer, He works His grace in us. Unbelievers don't acknowledge the debt they owe God. They refuse to acknowledge it. In their eyes, they have no debt. Who are they indebted to? The God they don't believe in? Their debt hasn't been paid off for them. They still owe God. In Tim Keller's DVD series titled The Reason for God, one of the participants, a a young and unbelieving, intelligent woman, said this, Now I'm at ease with taking the burdens of my own sins. I don't need somebody else to relieve that for me. I don't need to think about an afterlife because I'm scared to live this life. There's a famous quote that says, people who live a full life aren't scared to die. And for me, I'm living a full life and I'm not scared to take the brunt of my sins. She doesn't know the extent of her debt to God, nor the penalty for not paying. She doesn't know. Her debt remains. As an unbeliever, she has no payment till she runs to Christ. She has no payment. Unbelievers have not apprehended the holiness of God in His law, have not apprehended their own corruption and depravity have not apprehended the righteousness of Christ, have not apprehended the forgiveness of God they don't know. Hell exists because unrepentant sinners have an infinite debt to pay and as eternity passes, they have not gotten one bit closer to paying off their debt. That's why it's eternal and that's a terrifying reality. Jesus taught his forgiven disciples to pray and forgive us our debts. What is forgiveness? Forgiveness is when God does not count our sin against us. He pardons us. He withholds the punishment for our objective guilt. 
That is the comfort and consolation for us, dear brothers and sisters. That's when our guilt feels really heavy. That right there will bring comfort to the soul. Heidelberg 126 explains what we're asking for when we pray the fifth petition. For the sake of Christ's blood, do not impute to us, wretched sinners, any of our transgressions, nor the evil which still clings to us, as we also find this evidence of thy grace in us that we are fully determined wholeheartedly to forgive our neighbor. Your sinus explains, this is a long quote, but it is very good. It will be very helpful to you if, if you can comprehend this. Listen closely. Quote, this therefore is what we are to apprehend by the forgiveness of sins, that God does not impute any sin to us, but graciously receives us into his favor, declares us righteous, and regards us as his children out of his mere grace and mercy for the sake of the satisfaction which Christ made in our behalf imputed unto us and apprehended of us by faith and that he will therefore not punish us on account of our sins but grant unto us righteousness and eternal life since the remission of sin does away with the punishment of sin for sin and punishment are, are co-relatives when sin is introduced or committed punishment follows but when it is taken away punishment is at the same time removed I think sometimes we believers think God is an angry creditor showing up outside of our house with a billy club ready to beat us down if we if we don't pay up wow so we carry guilt we carry fear for our debt, trying so hard to be good enough for God, so hard, ah, maybe I'll be good enough today that he'll accept and love me. He's waiting outside to crush me if I don't do it right today. See, we are tempted to revert to a covenant of works and tempted to forget that we are indeed through Christ in a covenant of grace. Unbelievers are in a covenant of works. They have chosen law instead of grace and the law will eventually crush them. But brothers and sisters, we are in a covenant of grace. A covenant of grace. We have received Christ and his righteousness and the benefits of his redemption are ours and we rest in the comfort that he gives us in the covenant of grace. Do that by faith. We, we should be bold in asking God for forgiveness. We should be confident that he no longer counts our debts against us, but, but not because we are good enough, not because we work hard enough, not because we pray hard enough, but because Christ has made satisfaction for us. Do you pray, forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors, and then doubt that you have what you've asked him for? I think we languish in our guilt when we lose sight of the gospel. The Belgic Confession, Article 29, says about Christians, though great weakness remains in them, they fight against it by the Spirit all the days of their lives, 
appealing constantly to the blood, suffering, death, and obedience of the Lord Jesus in whom they have forgiveness of their sins through faith in him. Now that's a lot, but did you get at least the gist of that? We are weak, absolutely, yes, but we also fight against our weakness and we also appeal over and over and over and over and over and over till we don't have a pulse. We appeal, we appeal constantly to the blood, suffering, death, and obedience of our Lord Jesus in whom we have forgiveness of our sins through faith in him. There is our comfort. That appeal is not an empty appeal. It is granted. That is our comfort. When guilt is heavy upon us, weighing upon us, we almost feel paralyzed that we can't move or do things. We yet again make an appeal to the blood, suffering, death, and obedience of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we receive his forgiveness knowing that for the sake of Christ's satisfaction, our Father does not count our sins against us and He's motivating us and pushing us to greater obedience and holiness. As we put to death and we put on Christ, the gospel soothes a stricken soul. Number three, the fifth petition is encouraging. The second part of the fifth petition is, as we also have forgiven our debtors, oh, be careful how you hear that. You can make a muck of this entire verse if you hear that wrong. It is wrong to think that God forgives forgives us because we forgive others. You could read it that way, but that is wrong, wrong, wrong. We don't merit God's forgiveness by our forgiveness of others. That's not how it works. That goes against the entire canon of Scripture. Besides, how could our imperfect forgiveness deserve God's perfect forgiveness? You following that logic? It doesn't work. It breaks down. I like how Dr. R. Scott Clark explained it. He said this, we are tempted to turn that as into a cause or instrument of our forgiveness, as if in the Lord's Prayer we are placed on a legal, conditional works footing before God. That is not at all what our Lord is teaching here. If the forgiveness we receive is proportional to the forgiveness we give, then we are all damned because none of us has forgiven perfectly. Rather, we forgive because we have been forgiven. I think your sinus was spot on as well. Faith is strengthened and confirmed in us by this petition because when we truly extend forgiveness to our neighbor, we may and ought certainly to believe that our sins are also forgiven us so that we have a good conscience and are sure of being heard according to the promise of Christ. If you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. As we forgive our debtors, we do it by grace alone as the Holy Spirit works forgiveness in our hearts and this spirit-wrought forgiveness in us bolsters our faith and confidence that when we ask God to forgive us of our debts, he indeed does. He indeed does. Another way to say it would be, if you are bitter and merciless and an unforgiving person, you must not have experienced the unfathomable forgiveness of God and therefore do not actually have it. Have you ever considered that when you forgive others, it's actually comforting you in the process, your soul? And this 
encourages us to be forgiving people. You look at what God does not count against you. You consider it all. We've, I've lost track. I, 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 can't, I, can't give an, I can't even tell you all the things that I've done in my life to deserve hell and to consider he counts none of it against us. It's encouraging to know what Christ has done for us. He is quickly forgiving. Are you quickly running to him? Now, there are, as, as I bring it to, to a close here, there are some very complex questions associated with the fifth petition that we flat out can't get into now. I just was gonna not put them in the sermon. So questions like whether forgiveness assumes reconciliation or whether we can actually forgive people who don't repent or whether forgiving someone means that we don't pursue justice. Lots of questions here. And they, they arise from this text. So let me just say this. God calls us to forgive everyone at least in this sense. Though repentance, restitution, and reconciliation may not actually ever come. Though justice in church and civil courts is sometimes necessary, we must nonetheless surrender our anger, surrender our bitterness, surrender our resentment, surrender our retaliation, and trust God to dispense his justice in his timing. That much I know is true. And then we must love even our worst enemies. That much I know is true. Our hearts are like junk drawers. How about we ask our Father to clean them out every single day? 